about the desires of the soul. And Jesus is going to zero us in on really what can bring abundant life and fulfillment in the heart of a man or a woman. If you don't have a Bible tonight, please raise your hand. The servants team will get you one in your hand and you can read. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 9 tonight. So if you have a Bible, open to Luke chapter 9. We will be looking at this passage of scripture. And the reality is that all men and women are looking for the abundant life. They're looking for fulfillment. They try to find it in excitement. They try to find it in drugs or alcohol or career or academia or education, whatever it is. Everyone is really looking to have fulfillment in their souls. But the paradoxical message of Christianity seems upside down to you and I and our souls. And yet the reality is, as we unpack this information that Jesus teaches us how to really experience life, it's the exact opposite of everything that the world would tell you, as so much of Jesus' teaching is. Sin seems to invert everything. It turns it upside down. And when you think of this and you see the fulfillment that people tap into and the, the love, joy, and peace that Christians have, it's really an enigma to an unsaved world who maybe has the same economic standard as you do, the same kind of neighborhood, the same kind of job, the same kind of affluence, the same kind of family. But lacking is the love, joy, and peace that their soul is really aching for. And when they see it present in someone else's life, there's something extremely attractive about that. I had a premarital appointment years ago and I was quite shocked when the couple showed up. His name was Harold, and Harold was 81 years old. He had been married for 48 years, and his wife had passed away about three years before. And his, uh, his fiance was 78 years old, and her name was Iris. And Iris at 78, she had been married for 42 years, and her husband had passed away two or three years prior to. And we had a policy at our church that they needed to go through premarital counseling, and I was like 30 years old. <laughs> and at the time, I had been uh, married like nine years. And when they showed up, I was a little bit like mystified because all I knew was Harold and Iris was, were coming for premarital. I should have got the clue from the, the name Iris. It's an old school name, right? It's not, you don't meet young girls these days. Uh, like my my gr mom's mom, my <laughs> maternal grandmother, her name was Goldie, and, and my paternal grandmother was Jewel. So Jewel and Goldie, Iris, it's kind of like that same head, headspace as far as names go. Anyway, when they showed up and I met them, we all had a laugh together because they were very humble. They were very sweet. He was a very successful businessman in our community, and I knew his son um, rather well who was also still 15 years old, 20 years older than me. And as we taught, they said, well, we had to do this if you're gonna do our marriage, a wedding in the backyard. And uh, I said, well, you, you two know more about marriage than, I'm, it's gonna take me another 40 years to figure out what you guys have already know. So I'm, I'm sorry that we, we made you go through this. I got the uh, schedule and we were gonna do the wedding. But Harold shared something with me. You see, Harold was not a very religious man, yet when he was a young man, he went on a mission trip. He was in his early 20s, just in the college age, and he went on a mission trip, 
that impacted his life from his testimony like no other time in his life. He went on a two-week mission trip, I think it was to Mexico, and they helped an orphanage, and they were building things and helping the orphans. And he said, truly, it was the most fulfillment that I'd ever had. And at 81, he said, to this day, it is the spiritual highlight of my entire life. You see, I've heard that story that Harold shared with me time and time and time again, where people tapped into giving their life away for a good cause and experiencing the greatest fulfillment in their life as they gave their life away. A man came in a few years after that. He was 40 years old, and he shared the same thing. I went to a youth camp when I was in high school, and I felt so close to God by the end of that camp, I had never experienced anything like it in my life. And I shared with him these concepts that we're going to be talking about now, and that this is what he tapped into. And once you taste and see that the Lord is good, and you understand the way up is actually down, and the way to have fulfillment for me is to serve you, your life, the paradigm shift transforms your perspective on life. Let's stand together and read this passage of scripture in Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 23, as Jesus shares with us that the true desires of our soul, how to have those fulfilled. It says, then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his fathers and of the holy angels. Father, we ask now that your Holy Spirit will open up our hearts and our minds to understand the reality and the truth of what you're giving to us. Lord, we pray that you would write it on our hearts and our minds. I pray for those who are here. They're in church, yet their souls have been empty. They're in church, but their souls have been parched and dry, like there's a barrenness in the soul. And Lord, you brought them here to give them a refreshing drink of the living waters of your spirit. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would pour out your spirit into each one of our hearts to do your work, that we might experience the abundant life that you have for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to share with you four things from this passage of Scripture. And the first is the cost of our desire. Because we can have a desire, we can have a goal, we, we say that we want the abundant life in the Christian life, but we have to also count the cost and understand what it is going to cost us. It is going to cost us everything as far as our soul is concerned, to surrender our life completely. And when Jesus says in verse 23, then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, do you want to follow Jesus? Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now this is the process that becomes the conflict and the agitation within our souls. Because each of us, like sheep, have gone astray, each going his own way. Each one of us in, in our hearts is this iniquity, which means a bit towards sin. 
And ultimately, sin is just selfishness. Me pursuing whatever pleases me. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Uh, the pride of life is I deserve this. <laughs> right? and, and I'm going to pursue what makes my flesh feels good or my sinful nature feels good or what my eyes see that I like. This wraps up and sums up a life that most of us pursue. Right? This is how we go through life. Whatever feels good, I do it. Whatever looks good, I go after it. And you know, who are you to tell me that I don't deserve those things? Because in my pride, I think I'm at the top of the food chain in my own small little universe. And the Lord comes along and says, okay, do you want to follow me? Because I am the Lord of your life. And if you want to follow me, then you have to deny yourself. You have to say no to your sinful, fallen nature of your desires, and you have to say yes to me. No, you mean I have to do that once? Do I have to do that just when I, the day I receive Christ? And he tells us, no, it's a, it's a thing in which it's a very painful experience in the emotions of your soul. Have you ever just craved doing something in sin or temptation, and you know the Lord doesn't want you to, and there's this wrestling match inside? Now, I ask that rhetorically because you're a human, and unless you're dead, you've had that experience, right? Because that wrestling matches in each one of us. Because we all have a fallen nature, and when we're born again, this new nature, the work of the Spirit comes inside. And Paul the Apostle says in Galatians chapter 5 that these two are contrary so that you do not do the things that you want to do. Paul the Apostle described the struggle when you're basically getting your tail kicked by your fallen nature in Romans chapter seven, when he says, that which I will to do, I don't do. How many times you said, I'm going to do this, and you don't do it? How many times you said, I'm not gonna do that anymore, and you keep doing it, right? That's the wrestling match in the human soul. Don't feel alone, don't feel like you're the, I'm the only one trying to be good and failing. I'm the only one trying not to be bad, and uh, I'm very successful. <laughs> I don't wanna be, but I am. And that wrestling match that we have is like unto, Jesus says, basically being executed. An execution has to happen daily, not one time, not I did that great last month, not here or there. No, every day of my life, all through the day, from the time I wake up in the morning, throughout that day, in a moment-by-moment way, I have an opportunity to surrender to the Lord and be obedient in every circumstance of my life day after day. And when you stack a couple of days together of doing that and you realize the struggle that is there, it's like any muscle that's atrophied or out of shape. You have to learn how to do it consistently. First of all, you have to discover what the will of the Lord is in his word, and then you, the Holy Spirit empowers you to be obedient. Now, having experienced this for the last uh, three decades in my own life, I actually thought when I became a Christian at the age of 19, I thought I had lost my mind because I was so excited to know Jesus and be forgiven of my sin, but there was still this old nature that still wanted to do wrong things. And that tension inside of me, I had never experienced. I had only experienced, I want to do that, I go do it. And then afterwards, you know, if it was a bad thing, I do feel guilty. I have a conscience. And, but once I became a Christian, I'm like, this is not right. You should not have this type of turmoil inside of yourself if you want to please God, right? What ha what's wrong with this, this old guy? Can't we kick him out? <laughs> Can't the old Rick Brown? No, the old Rick Brown is alive and well, thank you very much. He is there, and he's there on a regular basis, and he's usually on the scene of any 
conflicting situation a nanosecond before the spiritual Rick. Meaning somebody cuts me off on the freeway. Immediately the flesh is <laughs> I immediately am just like, you know, flared up. And then the Lord's like, ah, oh, hey, God bless you, man, peace. They're flipping you off. They're giving you fingers. You give them too. Peace, blessings to you. Something happens and you immediately want to get defensive. Or the, 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 your first nature, your fallen nature, anyway for me, is always a nanosecond. I don't mean it takes over. I just mean it's right there because my reaction is first in my old nature. And then the spirit's right behind it. Like, hey, let's walk in love. Hey, let's forgive them. Hey, <laughs> you don't live like that anymore. One day I came out of the church now, I'd been a pastor in this community for 10 years. I had my two little kids. We had a Christian school. We had just got them out of school. I was in the church van, for heaven's sakes. It says in big letters, Calvary Chapel. And I'm pulling out on the parking lot, and there's a big, there's a big jacked-up four-wheel drive. He slows down on the road in front of me that I'm waiting to turn out on, and, and he flips me off the entire way he drives by. Now, I've done nothing. I'm just parked in the parking lot. Now, Somebody driving in that church van somehow, maybe in the last month, because all of our staff and various people drove it, must have offended this guy because all I, that's all I could figure is he was so mad somebody had cut him off or I don't know. Maybe he knew it was me and he was uh, angry at me. I don't know. Anyway, so he flips him off. Just, he slows down and makes sure that we have full icon. And I'm looking at him. Now, this is an old 1969 van, and my kids are in the, the there's only one seat up here, and the two of them are buckled up together, and they're giggling, and they're playing, and they're fighting, and you know, just like kids do, and they have no idea what's going on. But immediately, I was, I was the old Rick Brown. This is like a road rage situation, so I pull out behind the guy, and I start following him. I speed up, and I get on his bumper. He pulls off to a street, and he parks in the middle of the street. He's ready to go get out and fight. And I put my blinker on, I'm waiting for the traffic. And, and, and then the Lord's like, Rick. <laughs> not only are you serving me now, not only are you a pastor in this community, look at your two small children, they're in the van. You're in the church van, for heaven's sakes. And you're gonna pull over and throw down in the street with this guy. I mean, it's, once, once uh, the spirit shows up and brings logic and a, a Christian wisdom back to yourself, I'm like, what am I thinking? And I just took off and, you know, that guy, whatever, just took off. The wrestling match for each one of us on a daily basis, most of the time it's not that dramatic, right? You're going through things and the Lord wants you to forgive somebody that said something offensive to you. That might be your spouse because you live together and offense happens all the time in a marriage. You know, a word here, a you know, snarky remark there, and whatever. But to deny myself and to take up my cross daily means that in any given situation, the Spirit of God wants me to lead me into obedience to what God wants for that situation rather than you doing your own thing. Most people misunderstand this and apply it in various ways, and you've heard this throughout your life. Oh, it's only my cross to bear. Yeah, my wife's snoring is my cross to bear. This situation in my life is my cross to bear. It's, it has nothing to do with the burden. It has to do with you daily surrendering your will in obedience to his will 
every day of your life. Now, we don't do this perfectly, not even in a single day. I rare, I mean, it's not like I keep track, but uh, I don't think I go through with the perfect thought and the perfect action and the perfect word any singular day of my life, unless you made me a monk and locked me in a cell, right? Left me all alone, but then I'm still alone with my thoughts. So to take up your cross daily and to follow him is the Christian life. Your will for his will, his spirit for your soulish ways. Now this priority has to become the dominant dynamic of the Christian's life. As it says in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. He had just been talking about your food and your clothes and your supplies and all that stuff. He says, you know what, just seek God first. He's going to take care of your needs. He feeds the birds out there. He clothes the lilies of the field with beautiful colors. They're there today. They're gone tomorrow. God's going to take care of you. Just seek him first, his kingdom and his righteousness. But what is that focus? As it says in the two great commandments, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So if you only know these two things, today God wants me to love him and to love you. That's very simple, right? Very simple. Two commandments. I'm going to love God and I'm going to love you. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to serve you. And then the obvious, and that is Jesus laid his life down to love us and to serve us and to rescue us from our sins. And so we're to lay our life down for others. The obvious in 2 Corinthians 5.15, he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Paul the Apostle says this is just as a matter of fact as the Christian life. That if he died for all, then those who are alive and well should realize we're not to live for ourselves for the rest of our life. Pretty much, people look at their lives as whatever their plans are for the future. And if you really want to surrender your plans to the Lord, the Lord may have a different course than you have. He may have a different career than you have. He may have a different place of employment than, than he wants, that he wants you to be in. All these things are surrendered to his will and his desire. Now the choice of our desire, in verse 24, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Here's your choice. This is your choice. If you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. What does that mean? If I choose to do everything selfish that Rick wants to do, ultimately I miss out on the abundant life that God has for me because selfish fulfillment will not bring the love, joy, and peace that God's created in the Christian life. It just doesn't work. Find any, that, that's why so many wealthy people that have everything are miserable people because they have wealth, they have relationships, they have stuff, they have this career, and yet they are living life, they have nothing, there's, they don't withhold any desire that they have from themselves, and yet it doesn't produce the love, joy, and peace. Now there's pleasure, there's security with finances, but there's not love, joy, and peace. Every person in the center of their being is longing to experience love. They're longing to experience joy, true joy. And they are longing to experience a deep peace where their soul is totally at rest in their relationship with God and their relationship with others. I don't care how old you are. I don't care what your gender is. I don't care what nation you live in or what language you speak. 
Every human being is looking for these three things. And Jesus teaches us how to tap into those things through a relationship with him and these choices. He says, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But if I lose myself and what I think will be good for me and I am obedient to his will and I love God and I serve others, I love and serve God and I love and serve others, then there's a fulfillment that comes from that. Like Harold sharing with me about the greatest spiritual experience he ever had in his life as he gave his life away in serving others. As another man told me in my office, the greatest experience of his life, he's in his 40s, he was wanting to tap back into that, but he didn't understand the mystery of it, that he had lost his life for Jesus' sake for a week at camp and had tapped into a spiritual realm that he had never touched before. Now, anybody that's worked in youth ministry knows how this works, right? If you've done junior high camps, you've done high school camps. The first two days, the kids are just like dead flesh and bone. You think to yourself as a youth leader, Lord, can these, the valley of dry bones, live? Right? These kids are, I mean, they're, because you, you, you've stripped them of all the apparatus that they've numbed themselves through. There's, there's no TV, they don't, no earphones, no phone. You've stripped away everything that they've leaned on for their stimulation and you stripped it away and say, here you are as a human, a young man or a young woman, and we're gonna spend time loving God for five days and loving each other. Starting in the morning with worship and a Bible study, then playing all day and having a lot of fun together and building relationships, and then at night having worship and a Bible study. Monday goes by, Tuesday goes by, Wednesday goes by, and then by Thursday night, Thursday night, the dam breaks. Kids are like, oh, I just love Jesus so much. I, don't, I think God's called me into ministry. You know, it's like, it only took four days for you to lose your life and to love God for four or five days and to love the people that are in your cabin and around you and annoying you, for you to tap into the greatest experience and kids come back from camp like they're glowing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. They come back evangelizing the family. They come back talking about the joy of Jesus to their family. And then two weeks goes by and they're back to their same old place, right? Anybody ever have that experience in church life? If you're a youth leader, you've watched it. If you're a youth kid, you see it. Why is that? Because for five days, unlike any other time in their life, they're actually focused on loving God all week and loving the people around them. And they tapped into love, joy, and peace like they had never touched in their entire life. But the choice for that person and that choice for you and I here tonight is a daily choice for a lifetime. It doesn't mean you just tap into it for a camp. You mean, as I start walking with the Lord daily, I, I pray daily and I read God's word daily. And I'm like, Lord, I don't know what you have for me today, but whatever your will is, I'm into it, right? I'm into it. And I, I wanna be used by you. I wanna love you and I wanna love the people that are around me. So the choice is clearly yours because nobody can make that happen for you. Have you ever tried to make that happen for someone in your life? It's a son or a daughter and you're trying to help them be spiritual. So you shove them out into the aisle for an altar call. Or you, you, know, you sign them up for camp. Or your wife's not very spiritual so you signed her up for the women's Bible study. But she doesn't want to go to the women's Bible study. But you're trying to help her out. right? I did, I did this to my wife when we were young Christians. I was reading my Bible and praying. And, and there was a women's Bible study. 
And she really respected the lady that was leading it. So her name was Barbara. I said, Barbara, will you call Tammy and just invite her to the ladies to Bible study? And so it was all great. You know, I came home and she's like, you never guess who called me today. And I said, who? You know, I'm not playing dumb. And she's like, Barbara. And she invited me to the women's Bible study. And she said, I thought that sounded fun. Unless. I said, unless? She said, unless you put her up to it. I won't talk about the next week of conversations we had regarding that. But, you know, we're still married, so all right. So what takes place is only you can make that decision in your soul to lose your life for Jesus' sake to love God and love others. Only you can do that. You can't do it for your spouse. You can't do it for your kids. You can't do it for anybody else. You can model it. You can display it. And they can see the... It's attractive. They can see the love, joy, and peace in your life. But get this concept. This is the concept that Jesus is building on. In John chapter 12, Jesus says this, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He keeps using this word love and hate or lose and gain life. And here he uses the illustration of a grain of wheat. Just think of a grain of wheat. Now, if that grain of wheat remains above soil, just set it right here on this table, if this building lasts, you could come back in 200 years and that seed's alone still there on the table, right? It did not go into the ground, experience moisture and sunlight and germinize. So that one seed, when it dies, it goes into the ground. Now, think about it. The life of a seed is not very exciting, right? You're going to bury it in the dirt. And then it takes you know, several weeks for it to uh, germinize and as it then breaks out of the ground and it grows. And then it's, that one seed's gonna turn into 30, 40, or 30, 60, 100 fold of a head of grain. You mean one person, the illustration is, can lay down their life in serving God, loving God and loving others and they can minister to 30, 60, 100 other people with the love of God? You see what's happening with love life, how they're loving and serving people, right? They're laying their life down, the seed, without love life. Nobody would be there to be a voice for life and hope and love. Here we are tonight, and people are laying down their life to love and to serve you guys. That's what church is, and we're, we're used to people doing this for us at church, but in your own life, it needs to take shape and form and reality in your own life. So when you lay your life down, it doesn't mean you don't get tired. It doesn't mean you don't get exhausted. It doesn't mean that you uh, never struggle. It simply means that the ultimate way, if I go live my life selfishly, I just go travel the world. Say I get a million bucks, and I'm just going to go travel the world, and I'm going to serve moi. I'm going to take care of every desire. I'm going to pamper myself around the globe, and then I'm going to show up here after 12 months and share with you the beautiful testimony of how, how fulfilled I am. I would have nothing to really report unless I went on that adventure to love God and to love all the people that he put in my path all the way around. And then I would come and have an amazing story to share with you about what God did. So when I live by myself, I stay alone. Have you ever met an old grumpy person that is lonely and alone? I know none of them are here because they don't come to Saturday night. So... But I've done a lot of ministry, and I've done a lot of ministry even in rest homes and various things. And there are those people that 
they have a constant stream of visitors, their friends and their family are coming to see them. And, and then you've got that old crotchety guy in the wheelchair that nobody comes to see. Why is that? They couldn't build friendships. They couldn't build relationships with family. I've also done a lot of funerals. And when people love God and they love others and they lay their life down, it's amazing how packed those funerals are for that person because they do not remain alone. They've poured their life out and invested it in others. So when people guard their life and think they're saving the life because they say, ah, well, if you love people, now you're vulnerable to get hurt. C.S. Lewis said, if you never want to be hurt, love no one. He said, not even a cat. Because if to love is to be vulnerable, to love is to be hurt, to love is to have a messy life with messy relationships. So it's this concept gets built out in the most intimate of relationships, as we see in Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So even the exhortation for a husband is, I'm to be that seed that goes down into the ground, dies, and loves and serves my wife. Now, marriage is a mutual service. Now, I want you to know that you can start the, the cycle of life and blessing in your marriage. This is the way it goes. This is the circle of blessing. Think of Mr. Miyagi, wax on, wax off. Okay, circle of blessing. I wake up in the morning and I say, you know, how could I be a blessing to my wife today? How could I love her, my wife Tammy? How can I serve her? I could serve her with a kiss and a hug in the morning, tell her how much I love her, text her a few times through the day, bring her some flowers, take her out to dinner, do whatever. I know the things that mean a lot to my wife, pray with my wife, that means a lot to my wife, take her for a walk, that means a lot to my wife. All these things mean a lot to my wife. And I can start the blessing. I'm loving her and serving her. I don't wake up in the morning and go, you know what have you done for me lately? How come you're not loving me and serving me? What's the problem? Look at me. Am I not lovable and servable? What are you doing? So if you want to start the cycle of destruction, you got the cycle of blessing. You got the cycle of blessing. Wax on. You want the cycle of destruction? Wax off. Right? That is, I start looking at everything you don't do for me. It's all about me. What you don't do for me. And then they look at you and the destruction just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. But what happens when I began to love my wife and lay my life down for her? She also starts thinking, hey, how can I be a blessing to Rick? How can I love and serve Rick? Because we've been married a long time. She knows what I enjoy. I know what she enjoys. And sometimes it becomes a, a serve standoff. You know what I mean? I want to take you to dinner tonight. So where do you want to go? No, where do you want to go? Back and forth. And so you can start the cycle of blessing or you can start the cycle of destruction. This is the way the world does marriage. Just so you know. Married, the world does marriage this way. I've got to find the right person. I've got to put up all my hopes and dreams and expectations on that person. And when that person lets me down from all my hopes, dreams, and expectations, I go find a new person. Right? That's how the world does it. But the way you do it when you lay your life down is, I'm going to be the right person. I'm going to put all my hopes and dreams and expectations on the Lord because he's the only one that can really fulfill me. I have needs. Every human has needs that a spouse has no ability to fulfill. And then when I fail and I sin from those expect in some way, then I repent and I repeat all those things again. 
I'm going to be the right person. I'm going to love and serve Tim. I'm going to put all my expectations on the Lord. And when I fail, I'm going to repent and start all over. Sometimes I can do that, repent and start all over, and three or four times a day. Right? That's when I'm doing really, really lousy. So you lay your life down in marriage. You lay your life down with your friends. Jesus says in John 15, greater love has no one than this, than to lay one's life down for his friends. How do you know you really have a friend and they'll lay their life down for you? They help you move. Have you ever noticed your friends scatter when it's moving day? Strangers, even Jesus loves those who are strangers. In Romans chapter 5, it says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This understanding of laying your life down for others and investing in others is the gospel with shoe leather on it. That is the gospel. And the third is the consequences of our desire because if we make a choice to save our life, to lose our life, to gain the world, Jesus warns us in verse 25, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and he is himself destroyed or lost? What if you are the Bill Gates, the Jeff Zuckerberg, the Jeff Bezos Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, these people that have gained the whole world and they they have the yachts and they have three or four homes around the world and they have all of this wealth. But what if they have all of that and they don't have Jesus? This is the best they're ever gonna have in this world because for eternity, they'll be eternally separated from God. So what if you gain everything? What if you could have every sinful desire that's been percolating and bouncing around in your heart and mind for this last month? What if you could have every desire? You know, when Jesus was tempted by the devil, the devil took him up into a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and everything that was in those kingdoms. And he said, all this is mine. All you gotta do is bow and worship and serve me. Worship me and I'll give them all to you. He offered Jesus the entire, every sinful pleasure and fulfillment that this world could offer. He said, it's all mine, I'll give it all to you. All that you have to do is lose your life and worship me, Satan. See, why is so much on the line? We either worship God, love God, and love people, or we surrender our life and run after pleasure in the fulfillment in this world. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with success. Maybe you're one of those undercover billionaires here. God bless you. You're here. I know rich people in Jesus that love the Lord. And Jesus said, it's as hard for a camel to go through the eye of a needle as a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, I've met a number of people that have made it through that eye of a needle. They're just very few and far between. There's not very many of them because it's easier to trust in your riches than it is the Lord. Moses made this tough choice. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Moses had the world on a silver platter in Egypt. He was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He had all the wealth. There had never been an empire at that point like Egypt when he came into that that place. And so he had everything it had to offer, and yet he said, all the world of Egypt or loving God and loving God's people? He said, this one's nothing but pleasure and a soft 
fleshly satisfied life. This one's hard, filled with affliction, filled with difficulty and tribulation, persecution, hardship. And he chose this one rather than the passing pleasures of sin. Now, we have to be honest about this, you guys, is that there is pleasure in sin for a season, right? Otherwise, it wouldn't be called temptation. You can't tempt me towards something that's not pleasurable. It's like, whatever, that's not very tempting. (laughs) It's something that will satisfy you. But have you noticed this dynamic in all of human life? You You gotta wrap your mind around this. I'm living life, and the, the faithful track of life, there's always delayed gratification. Have you discovered that? Like, if you want to save to buy a new car or whatever, and you're saving, it's this long, arduous time until you get enough money and you buy that car, if you're going to save up and, and pay for it for, with cash. And so it's this delayed gratification. If I want to lose weight and gain some muscle and I go to the gym... I'm not even going to see any kind of results for the first six to eight weeks. That's a long, I go to the gym, I walk around in my sweats, acting like I'm doing something, hoping something by osmosis is going to happen, right? It's this long, delayed gratification. But have you discovered that when sin and pleasure and temptation is on the table, there's this incredible spike in excitement followed by an equally corresponding plunge? into guilt and shame? Or you want this, you try to do, get some immediate fulfillment and it ends very badly? It just seems that way all through life, right? It doesn't matter. You, you could put, fill anything in the blank. Anything we're working towards is a long, boring direction of laying my life down daily for it if I want to be an Olympic athlete. Think of all they have to go through for the delayed reaction that 10 years from now they're going to end up in the Olympics. But the person that says, oh, I'd like to go to the Olympics, but I want to party too much. And so they just, you know, basically party the whole time. They're not going to the Olympics. You know, in order to, I have to set aside certain things to accomplish other things. So you have a choice, what you want to accomplish. I could just bust the world open with sin. And that's the way I was living until I got saved at the age of 19. My mom said that I came, I was the youngest of four. And in many regards, I was the craziest of the four. And she said, you came with no stop signs and no speed limits, son. And no matter what she could try, she would tell me this. She would say, say, temperance, honey, temperance. There was no temperance in my life. And I can still remember her sweet voice telling me, temperance, honey, temperance, as I was getting in so much trouble. But I wanted it all, and I wanted it now. But the consequences, I was losing life. And... And life was being subtracted from me. So there was pleasure in sin. I had a woo, riotous time with my friends until I had handcuffs on or until I had the hangover. The party was really fun until I was hugging a toilet that normally I wouldn't touch in a public setting with a 10-foot pole. And now is my best friend. Oh, it's like, how did I get there? Well, because I was having so much fun, right? But the crash is equal to the fun that I was having in that regard. Lastly, For the confidence of our desire, in verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. He said, whoever is ashamed of me, we have to have a confidence in who we are in Jesus, not be ashamed of him who he is, not be ashamed of his word, 
and to not self-censor when the uh, opportunity is there for us to share our faith, not being ashamed of the gospel. Now, it's easy to be ashamed. It's easy to be embarrassed. I remember when I was working in this scene in Las Vegas and I was around all of these uh, rough and tumble construction workers, which I was living just like them uh, sometime two years before that. And as I'm hanging out with them, uh, I'm like, okay, now, now I have to go on record as a Christian in the midst of these heathens. And I knew what it's like. Oh, the railing and mocking and, oh, Mr. Sunday School, Mr. Billy Graham, Mr. More, right, you know, uh, more Righteous than the rest of us. And just like shaming and humiliation. And they would just mock me to no end. One day I was listening to, I was a marble installer, so I was putting marble in the tub surrounds in this hotel as we were going up in the Flamingo Hilton in Las Vegas, and this guy burst into the door, and I had my Christian radio going on. He said, don't you think you take this just a little too far? And he, was, he so startled me, I had no idea what he was talking about. I'm just putting marble on the wall. What do you mean I'm taking something too far? It's like, this is where it's supposed to go. It's right here, you know? But I had, it had been eaten away at him, my Christianity. He was so convicted and he said, don't you think you take this Jesus thing just too far? You listen to your stupid Christian radio. You pray over your lunch in the break room. You don't go down and have beer and hot dogs and cash your check on Friday like the rest of us. You're Mr. Holier Than Thou. Now, I, honestly, I had not treated any of them holier than thou. I'm, I came from that world. I know how to get along with guys like that. I was just loving them, being patient, and... But the fact that I was a Christian so irritated this guy. And I, I looked at him after I kind of regained my composure from being startled from him bursting into the door. I said, oh, you, th you think I'm taking my Christianity too far? He said, yeah. And I said, well, Jesus hung naked on a cross for me to be forgiven. How can I take anything too far for him? That just seems illogical to me. Like, how? Jesus is willing to hang naked with spikes through his hands and his feet for me on a cross, on a busy road, humiliated, shamed. And now I'm going to be ashamed of him? I don't think so. If you, if you don't want anything to do with me because of my walk with Jesus and you're ashamed of me, then that's your choice. But if I have a choice of being ashamed of Jesus... We're not having you as a friend, that's an easy choice. That's really an easy choice. But sometimes in the right circumstances, it's not an easy choice. We feel a lot of pressure, don't we? The family, the friendships. I'm in this awkward situation and, you know, heard, you, heard you're a Christian and, and you get, have you ever been given the floor to share? And you're ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. It's like the word, you fumbled over your words and you were intimidated by the circumstance or the situation or the person's prestige. I mean, I get it. My first day of college after becoming a Christian, I was in my literature, freshman literature class, and the, the professor was like 60 years old and quite arrogant. And he said, we're going to look at the literature. And he went through this long list of things. We're going to look at the literature. We're even going to look at it as he sneered. Some of the literature and the poetry of the Bible he said, do we have any Christians in here? Not Christians, Christians, because that's what I think of you. And I was sitting, I was a young Christian. I'd never read this passage yet. I'd only been a Christian for a few months. And I never read this passage that if I was ashamed of Jesus, he would be ashamed of me. 
And I was on the back row, and I'm like, well, this is weird. Like, this is my first exposure to somebody being de- so down on Christianity in a classroom. It was a packed classroom. And there was a guy on the front row, and he, you know, I was, uh, what, I was 19? There was a guy on the front row, but he was coming back to this community college. He's like 35, and he's not intimidated by this gray-haired 60-year-old uh, atheist. And he's right on the front row, and he put his hand up as if to sit up a little straighter. He's the only guy in the entire packed room. And he said, I'm a Christian. And I was sitting there slinking away in the back. Like, this is my first 101 shame class right here. And I didn't raise my hand because I didn't read this passage. Shortly after that experience, I was reading through the New Testament and I read this passage. And I repented. I said, God, forgive me. I, I didn't realize in that moment I was being ashamed of you, Jesus. I never want to be ashamed of you again. See, the reality is that when we're following the Lord, we're surrendering our will to him, and that's what it means to pick up my cross. I'm choosing his will over my will. I'm choosing to love God and to love others around me and to experience that in losing my life, I'll actually find life. But if I seek to save my life, then I lose it in empty selfishness. But Paul the Apostle had this down with his confidence in the Lord and not being ashamed of the Lord. Paul declares in Philippians 3.8, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul the Apostle said everything that I had in my life before I came to Christ, it's all rubbish. It also can be translated dung. It's a pile of manure. Everything that I was building my life on before I came to know Jesus was like a pile of manure. And I would give it all up again for the excellency of knowing him. He says again in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ, meaning that I'm dying to myself every day. That's how I'm crucified with him. And there's also a positional, spiritual righteousness that comes through that that I'm not going to launch into. But basically, the reality is Jesus is living his life through me, and my will is surrendered to his. Jesus said in that incredible prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Nonetheless, if this cup can pass from me, nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus, in the only moment that we saw in his entire life when he was getting ready to face the cross himself and to do the Father's will to save you and I and our souls, he said, Father, if there's a plan B, if there's another way to save men and women from their sins to take them to heaven with us, can we do that? Is there a plan B? Have you ever been in that place where there's so much pressure for you and you know what God wants you to do, but you're really praying, Lord, give me a plan B? I'd rather have the plan B. This, this doesn't look very fun. And he prayed that three times. Luke's gospel says that he was in such distress, it was like as if he was sweating great drops of blood. He was so distressed. So don't think your distress and this inward conflict of your soul, Jesus didn't taste it because he did. In all points, Jesus was tempted just like you and I. What does all points in the Greek mean? It means in every way, shape, and form that you've ever been tempted, Jesus was tempted. People say, well, I don't think Jesus ever experienced this. This is what I struggle with. All points. He struggled yet without sin. 
He's a faithful high priest because he knows what you're struggling with. He knows what you're wrestling with. And he knows also that if you'll lose your life in obedience to his will, that he will give you the abundant life of love, joy, and peace that you're looking for. But if you choose your course of selfishness, it's nothing but emptiness, regret, sorrow, and loneliness. You choose his. You have the Lord. You have relationships. You have fulfillment. You have the grace of God working in and through your life. Jesus said an interesting thing in John chapter 7, verse 17. He said, if you will do the doctrine that I'm teaching you, you will know it comes from God. He's basically saying that if you will apply what I'm telling you to do, you'll know that it is true. Because until you test it to prove it, you don't know it's true, right? Some of you are, are thinking I'm blowing smoke right now. Well, this sounds like, like some really good spiritual rhetoric. No, I have lived it, and I know it's true. I know what it's like to live selfishly, feel, be, be filled with regret, guilt, shame, and loneliness, and I know what it is to lose my life for Jesus' sake and feel love, joy, and peace like nothing I've ever experienced in this life. So when he invites us, when he invites us to tap into the abundant life he has for us, he says, this is the way it works. And if you'll put this doctrine to the test, I promise you, you do this for 30 days. I had a young couple a few years back. They told me, we're on a one-year adventure, a 12-month adventure to see if everything that Jesus tells us in the New Testament is true, we're going to do it. Every time we read a passage in the New Testament, Jesus says, do this, we're going to do it. A year went by, and I said, hey, how'd your experiment went? They said, man, it blew our minds. Because they simply took it at face value, applied it to their life, and they applied the doctrine that he taught them. They did it, and it fulfilled everything he said it was going to fulfill. That doesn't mean, once again, that your life is going to be free of conflict, free of adversity. As a matter of fact, I get myself more in trouble doing God's will than I do if I just, like, you know, bag out and just live an isolated life because I'm not, I'm not interacting with anybody. But I would rather have the messiness of serving and laying my life down for Jesus and the love that he puts in my heart than to have my own selfish fulfillment and experience the loneliness of my soul that I know so well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We pray that you would strengthen us, you'd build us up, that your hand would be upon our life and our soul. Lord, I ask, Lord, for those who are here, that you would bring the realization and the reality of the real beauty of losing our life for you, that we might find it truly, Lord. I pray that your spirit would do that work in our hearts and our lives, that we would take that bold step in the grand experiment for, hey, for the next year, I'm just gonna lay my life down in loving God and loving people and see what he does and watch the fulfillment that comes to life. Lord, thank you. We pray that your spirit would write these words in our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. We're going to close with this worship song. I want you to know that the prayer team's here. They'd love to pray for you and minister to you. And uh, may the Lord strengthen you as you walk with him. And if you need prayer, don't leave tonight without receiving that prayer from the prayer team up here in front. Blessings.